As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Uh, you are now tuned into anything potable, the most honorable, the most audible, hold the applause, huh, like Paul Welcome to Anything is Potable, the Boston Celtics podcast here on the Athletic Podcast Network. I'm your host, Sam Jam Packard, professional sports fan, and I am joined, as always, by the kid, the god, the legend himself, Celtics beat reporter from The Athletic, Jay King, ladies and gentlemen. And we are here at the halfway point of the Boston Celtics season. Jay, I gotta admit, I've been in a bit of a COVID fog for the past uh, week or so. Um, I was gonna say what the Celtics' record is. I think it's it's uh, thirty-one and ten, but I I don't know. I honestly, you have to tell me. I've, you're gonna have to do a lot of heavy lifting here as we do our midseason check-in. You you don't know anything. I mean, I you know, just, I know some things. I just, I had a momentary, like, I don't know what's going on. I'm looking now. I remember they're 29 and 12. Um, what did you say? That momentary, I don't know what's going on thing has kind of been your whole life. My whole life. I have, yeah. I have, uh, I have advanced degrees from Ivy League institutions. I wouldn't say it's my whole life whatsoever. That's the cockiest you've ever been. Normally, <laughs> I, I'm the, I'm the one being like fake cocky, but that was real cocky. You're coming at my. You're checking my intelligence. If you were gonna question my like basketball knowledge, I would maybe <laughs> do. I have multiple Ivy League degrees. Do I not? Have you checked the resume? <laughs> I, I graduated from Bowdoin and then went to Penn and wherever else I went. Oh, so you have checked the resume then? <laughs> I'm, I wasn't prepared for you getting cocky all of a sudden. That, that's <laughs> never you. Don't come out my brains. My mind grapes are strong. This might, <laughs> this might be the funniest moment in podcast <laughs> history. We just reverse roles for a Yeah, second. entirely. Uh, but we are here. It's halfway point with the Boston Celtics season. They are 29 and 12. Like I said the first time, they're on a three game winning streak, a strong win against the Dallas Mavericks, which. I want to talk about it's uh, that game. I don't want to like dive into just the minutia of these three games because I think it's more interesting if you do the full kind of midseason check in. But I do want to talk about that win against the Mavericks and a story you wrote because I thought it was interesting. 
that Joe Missoula just ripped into the role players and told them they weren't doing enough. And that was kind of the reason for the Celtics struggle. Uh, I think we gave Ime a lot of credit for him holding, the, I guess, the stars accountable last year. Um, but that was not the kind of story I expected to see coming out of that Dallas game, which they thought they played much better. Um, but you're there in Dallas. You wrote that story. You talked to the players. What was your biggest takeaway from uh, Bazooka Joe coming in and just be like, look, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are doing their jobs. It's all the rest of you punks who are, who are not stepping up here. Yeah, it's all you other assholes. <laughs> gotta gotta knock down shots, make the game easier for them. I, I think it was probably needed uh, for a couple of reasons. One, the bench was just bad for a while, and and the bench like was a huge plus early on. Um, I think during that twelve game stretch, the Celtics went five and seven. Malcolm Brogdon had a minus twelve net rating. Sam Hauser's was even worse. So. Like that was it was clearly a, a area of concern uh, that the role players just weren't weren't playing well enough, weren't impacting the game. And two, so much has been put on Tatum and Brown, and over the last two seasons, especially, they've been the guys who have taken the brunt of the coaching. Um, Emil Doka came in, and the first thing he said was. Those guys need to become better playmakers. Last year, it was your turn, my turn offense. And all of that messaging was designed to get Tatum and Brown to lift up their teammates. And for a year and a half, for longer than that, but for for a year and a half, they've been on a a journey to become those those guys who can lift up a team. And, And so I think it was important probably for those guys to hear like, oh, wow. Cool. Like we're 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 doing what they want. It, it's and and to see everyone else be held accountable for for their role. And not that everyone else wasn't held accountable, but I, I do think because they're the two best players, because so much of the responsibility falls on them, that sometimes it gets lost. Um, that that the other guys, um, when the other guys don't live up to their end of the bargain, and so. I was surprised, uh, number one, that it happened. Number two, that the players just openly shared it. But they all seemed to take the message well. And I think um, that's one thing that has stood out about this Celtics roster, especially over the last couple of seasons. They are very willing to be coached. And and that's that's been an important part of their transformation from Tatum and Brown um, to the, the bottom of the roster. Like They're okay when they're told, you guys have been shit. And they kind of like it sometimes. Like Marcus Smart seemed fired up about it. <laughs> Grant Williams was like, "Yeah, we, none of us take anything personally, and we kind of needed to get our shit together." So, and those weren't direct quotes, but I, I do think um, it was probably an interesting tactic. But in this case, looks like the right tactic. They've they've won three straight games since, and it seemed to uh, at least work. Uh, I mean, Grant Williams had a great game. Uh, last night against the Bulls, uh, and they they certainly stepped up with their performance. They're still not like I think they really duped us all in just how well they played offense for the first like two months of the season. I just don't know if that level of shot making and shooting forty five percent from the field uh, is to be expected. And maybe they set that kind of. Expert. You mean from from three basically? Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. Um, 
I do have two Ivy League degrees. No, I'm just smoking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but they, it does seem like they they got better um, better play from their bench uh, at least over this this stretch. I think, in just in terms of what do you think the biggest question is as they head into the second half of the season and. My answer, I don't. I, I frame this poorly because I'm going to tell you what the biggest question is. You tell me if you disagree. Is when do they move Robert Williams back to the starting lineup, uh, and when do they make that a full time thing? We saw that happen against the Bulls, but Marcus Smart was hurt. Uh, it certainly felt like he had a huge impact just on the defensive end of the court. Um, but when do you see them making that transition? Right now, they are the ninth best defense in the league in terms of net rating. They have the best. I mean, in terms of defensive rating. They have the best, this is all according to basketball reference, best net rating, still have the best offense in the league by 0.1 points per 100 possessions over the Nuggets. But when do you think that you uh, see that kind of full transition back to Robert Williams? Yeah, and that's that's sort of would be my question uh, for the second half is what type of team do they want to be? And I think you you probably hit it on the, on the head when – not that they duped us because they are. I mean, yeah, they weren't trying very, to like get one past us. They just like shot the hell out of the ball for two months. And and they're a very good offensive team. And and when when they're locked in, when they're doing the right things, like they're gonna score a lot of points. But I my my question is sort of like you: When do they start Robert Williams? When do they go bigger again? Um, Jason Tatum has played forty two percent of his minutes at power forward which is significantly higher than he did last season. Uh, in the Bulls game, not just starting Rob, but they stayed big with either Rob or Al Horford or Grant Williams at power forward the entire game. They did not play Jalen at power forward. They did not play Tatum at power forward. And and that felt like, like obviously it was partly because Marcus Smart was out, but it also felt like Missoula just – just leaning into defense, leaning into size, leaning into physicality, and uh, it's it's been told to me that Robert Williams's minutes limit is going to be boosted a little bit. Oh, I thought uh, he wasn't on a minutes restriction. Oh, he is on a minutes restriction. <laughs> that was so funny, just lying to the media's face. She's like, "No, he's not on a minutes restriction." We're just yeah, watching his minutes, but he's going to play twenty-two <laughs> minutes exactly twenty-two <laughs> minutes every single game. <laughs> Uh, but he played 23 against the Bulls, and I think he was available for a little more. I don't know exactly what that number was. Um, but I do expect to see his minutes climb a little in the in the near future. That could mean they begin starting him um, and go back to the lineup that was defensive-minded last season. And, and I think it's really important for them to get to that place. Like, you look at their defense, um, and it's been really good. Like, they're seventh in defensive rating. Um, they're only a couple points behind the Cavaliers for first. Okay, can I pause you there one second? I'm on basketball reference, yeah. and it says they're ninth. What are you using to say they're seventh, and why do we have different metrics for defensive rating? NBA.com. Um, some use an estimate of um, possessions, and some are more exact, I believe. That's stupid they should just have there should be one universal offensive and defensive rating but uh i digress you were saying they are seventh they are still quite good either way yeah they're they're very good at defense but but robert williams's presence just turns that 
defense from like good into a superpower. And and so, you know, if they can get to that, if if they want to get to that more often, um, and stay bigger, I, I just think they have more ways to play this year with Malcolm Brogdon coming in. Um so yeah, we'll see. But but what type of team do they want to be? And that's on Missoula. I, I do think because, like you said, the offense probably isn't just a world-beating offense like it looked for the first couple months of the season, that defense, like leaning into defense, is probably their best formula. And and I do think they should play bigger. And I, I they know they, they – they agree with that. It's not like they're sitting Rob Williams because they think they're better without Rob Williams. Like, hell no. That, that's not how it is. They just – Want him to be healthy for the playoffs. They're easing him back into things, um, but but with the the level that they can play at, while small, uh, there's going to be a balance for Joe Mazzulla about when to go to those bigger lineups, when to go to the more guard oriented stuff, um, and those are good problems to have. Like being able to be that flexible, it's a really good problem to have. Um, but yeah, Robert Williams's reintegration second half of the season is is really huge. So who do you think's minutes take a hit? Like Rob averaged basically 30 minutes a game last year. Um, if he comes back and gets back to that 30 minute mark, who's who's playing less for the Boston Celtics? They have like they still have an extremely deep roster. Does that mean just we're not seeing Sam Hauser again, or just he's we're just seeing a lot less of him? I don't, I don't know because uh, if if you're if you're trying to get to bigger lineups, uh, maybe it's White's. A couple of White's minutes get sacrificed. Maybe a couple of Malcolm Brogdon's minutes get sacrificed. There, there are a lot of ways you could do it. You could even take it away from Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and allow them to rest a little bit more, which would be pretty important, probably for the long run. And going into the season, uh, that was supposed to be the big emphasis of like we can't have these guys run down in the playoffs. Like we wanna. We want to have all these guys fresh and playing those uh, Tatum and Brown less is kind of a big emphasis. And it just hasn't been something that's really happened for the first half. But that would make sense of just like relying less on, on those two stars. Yeah, and you can't really do that too much. Um, you don't want them to play too few minutes, but you also don't want them near the top of the NBA leaderboard in minutes per game. Jason Tatum is fifth in minutes per game right now he is fifth also in overall minutes played Jalen Brown is eighth in overall minutes played so cutting those guys minutes um would probably be beneficial at some point and it doesn't have to be huge but like if you play them two minutes less per game then that could be a big deal in the long run um but yeah so there are a lot of different ways Joe can do it um but I do think getting to that Robert Williams Al Horford duo is something that they are eager to see more of, and we saw it for 11 minutes against Chicago, and the Bulls went eight for 22 from the field. Robert Williams was just swatting shit and otherwise making guys' shots very difficult. And it's been honestly like I thought Robert Williams was going to struggle when he got back. And the, the team, it it did take like a little tiny bit for them to reincorporate him and get the rhythm back. I still don't think the offense with those big lineups has looked great, but he has looked like just normal. He he did not look like a guy who missed twelve weeks or whatever it was. He he came back, shot out of a cannon, and 
It, it's kind of crazy how much he transforms them. I was looking at the numbers last night. When when he's on the court, they rebound a third, essentially a third of their misses, their own misses on the offensive glass, which would be tied for second in the NBA. And when he's off the court, they rebound just 23% of their misses, which would be like 28th in the league. So he changes them like totally in a lot of ways um, and has done that even from the start after missing months. So he's just a freak. Yeah. Utter freak. (laughs) Absolutely. uh, Insane jumper, leaper, athlete. Uh, What do you think? Like, so the next kind of like stage in this uh, NBA season is like the trade deadline coming up, uh, I guess, in about a month now. We've talked earlier in the season about them kind of maybe adding an additional big to in case they need more more depth at that position, just given Robert Williams' health and Al Horford's age. Right now, to me, it doesn't just feel like it's like I just don't see the Celtics doing anything at the deadline, but maybe that's me being naive. What what do you think? Like, is this do you think Brad Stevens will be active in trying to add someone to this team? I just to me it feels like they have a pretty solid nine man rotation and I don't know who you're going to get that is going to step in and immediately like supplant one of those top nine guys. So uh, at first going into the season, I think the Celtics thought they would be active and looking for a big and that that would be uh, an area that they might want to shore up. Luke Horn, that's been totally fine. Um, and I, I mean, think Brad if, Stevens thought that going into the season that Luke Cornett was a legend, but. Yeah, I think if Horford, if Robert Williams, if they get into foul trouble in the playoffs, then Cornett has shown he'll probably be totally fine in most circumstances. Um, so I don't see that as a huge, huge need at all. If you can get somebody legit to upgrade that spot, maybe do it, but. It's not totally necessary. Um, What's kind of wild, if you think about last year's playoff run, is that Robert Williams was hurt. They they had Daniel Tice starting playoff games for them um, last year. And uh, as much as I was a fan of Tice, and as much as I was an ardent fighter in the war on Tice, or the, the war against the war on Tice, the, those minutes didn't go well. And I do think like the depth they have and the ability to play small, which they've done for the first half of the year, like if there is an injury to uh, Horford or Robert Williams, it's not like you're immediately going to just going to start Luke Cornett. I feel like you just start with a smaller lineup and use those Luke Cornett minutes kind of more sparingly. But it's it feels like it doesn't automatically hurt the Celtics. It definitely changes what they have to do. But I don't think there's like a, as big a need for that kind of like backup big man. Oh uh, yeah. So uh, as as they've gone more into the season, I've wondered if they should go out and get someone like a a wing type to to supplant the Hauser minutes, and not because he's he's been bad. Like he's been he's been pretty good. He's when he makes shots, he really juices the offense. When he doesn't make shots, he's still a threat at all times. His defense has mostly been totally fine. Guys target him, but he holds up pretty well. Um, but like their their rotation would be so good if 
if you took Hauser and put in like let's say a Jay Crowder type, um, like to just allow them to be more physical. And I'm not saying go after Jay Crowder because they might not have the assets to go after Jay Crowder. But if you could just upgrade that position, are you then... looking for more like like a, a presence on on defense? Because I don't know if you're gonna like. Yeah, just someone that... to to. I don't know who it would be, but someone to bring s- more size, strength, bulk, um, more able to like switch and guard bigger guys. I I just feel like like the Hauser is like he's been good, um, but I I just I just feel like deep in a playoff series, um, the difference between Hauser. And a Jay Crowder type could be like pretty important, and like I don't know who who the targets would be. I haven't really thought about it that much, um, but that might be the type of guy that I would target because then you can stay bigger um, more often. Then you can really, really be a rugged team, uh, and th- those guys are really tough to find uh, on the trade market, especially. In the Celtics case, they've already given up their first round pick from this year, so they they probably won't want to give up a first round pick. Um, I'm just guessing there, but they they will have like Gallinari, Peyton Pritchard, and a couple seconds offer. Would I don't know how far that gets you. That does uh, that does remind me we this is the first time we podcasted pouring one out. For the Noah Vonley era, uh, he did get traded to the Spurs for cash considerations and then promptly waived. Uh, they do have like an open roster spot now, so they could potentially buy a buyout guy or like uh, I don't know who's out there. I just don't like. I do think it would be nice to add. I guess that type of player, like a bulkier four with some playoff toughness, but like I don't know where you get him at the price that you're like willing to pay at this point. So that like right now I'm just not expecting the Celtics to do much at the deadline. Yeah. And, and they don't need to do much. Um, they are like their roster is deep. Their roster is complete. Their roster is flexible. Um, the guys that they kind of needed to step up Hauser and Cornette have been capable in, in those roles. So they really don't need to do much, if anything. Um, but I do wonder if, like, going after a, another like rugged wing would be would be helpful. All right, right now we're gonna go to celebrity caller Joshua B, who's promised to bring it. Uh, in my absence, he's done a lot of work, uh, and so I'm expecting greatness. Joshua B, don't let me down. I hope I don't. Um, I've got some I, – I have some great stuff on the Bulls. I have a little bit of less on the Pelicans. Um, but, yeah, it was always a foregone conclusion that we were going to, to beat the Bulls. And now we're, now we're 16-5 and five at home. We have the best record in the NBA. The team with the number two record just lost Kevin Durant. And we're about to face a Pelicans team that has gone one and two in the last three games, coincidentally, all without Zion Williamson. Um, I want to use my platform right now to just send a message to Joe Missoula, 
Today is the day. Oh, send a message. Yeah, send a message. If you can get this to him, just so that he knows, um, in case he hasn't looked at the Pelicans today. Um, this is the day to play the double bigs lineup, right? Don't fall for that three, because the Pelicans shoot 34.6% from three-point three range. In the last three games, the Pelicans have shot 28.7% from three-point. That's good for third I, I love the research you're doing, Josh. This, this is thoroughly researched. This is good stuff. Uh, thank you. I, I I work for you. I was I was ready to go on the Bulls on um, and why they would never had a chance. Um, but the, <laughs> but the big thing, the big reason that I sort of want to bring this up to you is because sixty nine point five percent of the points that the Pelicans score are within two are in two points. In and of that sixty nine point five percent, eighty percent of that, a little over eighty percent, is in the paint. So this is that window. This is that window to get your bigs out there. This is that window to develop to defend that Jonas Valanciunas Najee Marshall combo that is like basically the source of any non-CJ McCollum points that the Pelicans get. Um, I was hearing your conversation a moment ago, and I looked up just because I, I was thinking about what you were talking about with Sam Hauser, and I, I thought like who would I like um, if I were to really try and upgrade those those minutes. And I got some names for you just to to look at, to think about. Um, Damian Lee, Isaiah Joe, um, Jeremy Grant, if you really want to get big, Kevin Herter, Georgie's Niang, Patrick Williams, Bojan Bogdanovic, Dougie McDermott, Corey Kispert. What do all those guys have in common? They all shoot more than 40% from from three-point range. So they're over 40%, and they're going to continue to be able to space the floor. And that's essentially what I want out of Sam Hauser in the first place. So of those guys, who do you think is the best defender? And who do you think would be the best replacement for Sam Hauser? I just gave you a bunch of names. I know that some of them are going to be expensive. I know Luke Kennard would probably be expensive. I know that Jeremy Grant would probably be expensive. But Alec Burks um, and Isaiah Joe, those seem completely normal to me. Doug McDermott, Corey Kispert, totally normal. Am I off base or, or no? Uh, see, and this is where it gets tricky. Um, you, to upgrade that spot, the the way I see it, to upgrade that spot, it needs to be a capable defender. And so like Doug McDermott is capable in his role, but I, I wouldn't want Doug McDermott guarding for anyone. (laughs) Yeah. In a playoff series, like. Not sure Dougie Dougie McBuckets getting in a defensive stance and guarding an ISO against like Durant or Kyrie Irving is really what you want. Um and, and that that's why it's tough and that that's why I brought up like the Jay Crowder archetype, because he's just a guy who you can plug in and he can guard a lot of positions. And those guys are tough to find. Um and when you get them, they're very val- valuable. Damian Lee would be interesting, but the Suns are like pretty desperate for for actual basketball players right now, and I don't think they're ready to to blow things up yet. So, well, so. just just to make a very quick comment on Damian Lee, since you brought him up, um, they may be desperate for competent basketball players, and if they are, they might consider playing Damian Lee a little more than twenty one point eight minutes per game, which is one of the lowest of all the people that I named name for you which indicates to me that maybe he's available 
And and I love how you threw out Jeremy Grant and Bogdanovich, but guys like that just probably aren't gettable for the Celtics because number one, like the Blazers need Jeremy Grant. Uh, Bogdanovich will be available by all accounts that that I've seen and heard, um, but he his contract is like the Celtics don't have a lot of contract to cobble together to go after someone with a, a big deal. The the guys that they're going to go after, you know, like I said, it'll probably be like the Gallinari, Peyton Pritchard combination that they'll be dangling um, just because they don't have bad contracts to trade. They, they don't. Um, everybody in their rotation, unless they wanted to move one of their top eight players, um, then which I, I don't think they do because they they do believe they have a complete deep roster and if if they were to add something they, they would just be an enhancer to the guys they already have so I, I think I think you have to limit it to guys who make like eight nine million dollars a year it's like a pretty impossible ask to like upgrade the Hauser minutes and then also maintain a Hauser level of of three point shooting. I think the, everyone in the league is looking for that three and D guy. And it's just with what Jay's mentioning, like with what well, the Hauser's a rare shooter. He's a rare shooter. When, when he, like, when he's, he's making he's shots. shots lately, but, but that dude is, he's a knockdown shooter. Exactly. And I think over the long run, he is going to have a very high shooting percentage. And given that it's very hard to kind of like, I, I guess, upgrade his minutes Unless you're just w- completely willing to like, okay, we're not going to just have that that much three point shooting. We're going to bring in a guy who's entirely more focused on defense. I just think it's like a a trying to thread a difficult needle there. Needle there, just trying to figure out a way to get so like com- a comparable three point shooting, but also someone who provides size, physicality, and defense. Like you know, everyone in the league is looking for three and D guys like that. Can I just ask one last question? I will let it go after this. I'll get off stage. Uh, only you did mention that you had some junk as well. So I, I'm going to need both of that from you, Joshua. I gave you the junk. Oh. I gave you the New Orleans Pelicans junk. No, no. Junk junk is not basketball related. Uh, I'm just... <laughs> not basketball related. Well, I love this, what... this, this is your This is your first flaw today, Josh. Honestly, I have been so impressed by the the way you've raised your game, Josh. Well, thank you. I, I'm trying very hard to be a valued member of the team when, when I get to come up. Um, I have one I have one last um, thought for you based on, on the responses that you gave. Um, Isaiah Joe makes a grand total of $2 million a year, um, which is a completely affordable contract in the range that you're talking about um, with just giving up Gallinari, maybe not even giving up, um, maybe not um, even giving up um, Peyton Pritchard, just having um, a guy out there right now. He's, he's due 2.5 million. That's, that's what I'm seeing. He plays roughly the same um, number of minutes as Hauser and plays relatively good defense fifth in three point percentage and playing what 14 minutes a game. All I know about the Oklahoma city thunder is that they have a war chest of picks, but everything is about picks. What can we do to get picks? And wouldn't Isaiah Joe be a completely reasonable target? And he's sitting out apparently with knee soreness, which translates to me as, well, we just don't want to win games because we're the Thunder. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Josh. Uh, I, I 
Isaiah Joe has had a mildly promising season in Oklahoma City. He's too small, though. He's six four. Too small. Like, you, where like I like the stats. <laughs> he but... is listed at one hundred sixty five pounds. Yeah, which is like, wild. That is, that is a lot less than me. But like uh, you're talking about upgrading physicality and defense. Like you want a big six. Six to six. Yeah. To you're eight you're better wing. off keeping Hauser than than going to Isaiah Joe. I do like that uh, he's listed at 165 pounds, and his nickname on Basketball Reference is uh, Stroke and Joe. Uh, that's pretty <laughs> stroke, stroke. That's pretty badass. Some of those nicknames are they they put are absolutely made up. There is no way anyone has called Isaiah Joe Stroke and Joe in the history of his life. I I mean I will forever call him Stroke and Joe moving forward. He will. I might call Joe Mazzulla stroking. Not Joe. to his face, you won't. <laughs> <laughs> but I just like don't. I think it's like if you you think the Celtics could make a deal if they like it works out fine. Will I be surprised if they make a trade? I I just still think they will be because I don't know if that magical player is out there. And just given what you said about Sam Hauser. When he is making shots and when he's fully capable of doing that, and like you said, he's a special shooter, he's a very dynamic player and a huge threat and makes their offense so much better. And so I don't know if, like, do you mess up Sam Hauser's confidence if you bring in a guy, a defensive, I guess, specialist to and kind of take his minutes away? Are you ruining, like, don't you want to kind of just, like, build up Sam Hauser? And so hopefully during when it does become playoff times, like, he is a 40% three-point shooter and just like a lethal guy you can bring off the bench. Uh I, I don't think the Celtics are in the the point in their development where they should be worried about Sam Hauser's confidence and what they're doing to Sam Hauser's confidence. If you can upgrade that position, and it's gonna be tough. Like I think the the smart money is probably on them doing nothing or next to nothing at the deadline. But if you can upgrade that, just go ahead and do it. You don't worry about Sam Hauser's confidence. That's that's fair. Maybe I'm just a little bit more sensitive to you. Maybe I, I just worried about my my fellow Sam out there. Uh, I just think it's like if you you talk about shooters, you want him to keep shooting because I do think he, Sam Hauser brings a lot of value to this basketball team when he is at his best and when he is knocking down shots and. If you just had a consistent Sam Hauser shooting forty to forty five percent from three, like I don't think you need to make any trades at all. Then I think that's like a very valuable. What would he be the tenth man in the rotation? And like that's a very useful thing in the playoffs. And this, if this team turns more kind of uh, defensive minded, having Sam Hauser come in off the bench, he's not really a player uh, the Celtics have had before, where you just have to constantly pay no attention following him around screens if he's making shots like that that's just a dynamic weapon to have on offense and i think it's a valuable piece and you just i guess the the, the way to get him there and to have him be valuable uh when it comes time for the playoffs is just to have him keep playing and keep shooting at this point stroking sam if you will oh <laughs> well, no one no one wants to hear that jay this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the nba want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. 
Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You know, if I would have applied myself, I could have gone to the NBA. You think so? Yeah, I think so. But it's just like, it's been done. You know, I didn't want to, I was like, I don't want to be a follower. Hi, I'm Jason Concepcion. And I'm Shay Serrano. And we are back. We have a new podcast from Wondery. It's called Six Trophies. Woo! And it's the f-ing best. Each week, Shay Serrano and I are combing through all the NBA storylines, finding the best, most interesting, most compelling stories, and then handing out six pop culture-themed trophies for six basketball-related activities. Trophies like the Dominic Toretto I Live My Life a Quarter Mile at a Time trophy, which is given to someone who made a short-term decision with no regard for future consequence. Or the Christopher Nolan Tenet trophy, which is given to someone who did something that we didn't understand. Catalina Wine Mixer trophy. Ooh, the Lauren Hill, you might win some, but you just lost one trophy. And what's more, the NBA playoffs are here, so you want to make Six Trophies your go-to companion podcast through all the craziness. Follow Six Trophies on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Let's move on to Joe Mazzula's first half of the season. Uh, He was placed into a extremely difficult situation. I'm, I'm going to ask you how you feel about Joe Mazzulla while knowing that you are probably very excited about the job that he's done so far. Um, I might, I might zig when you're expecting me Ooh. to zag here and go back to what I said earlier in the season at the very start when this kind of happened. Coaching doesn't matter. <laughs> I say that I would say 95% in jest. I like of course I'm going to like gush about how great of a job he's done because the I'm Celtics I'm going to tell Nick Friedman you said that. <laughs> I'm going to I'll see him next week. I'll tell him to his face. Um they're 29 and 12. Like I don't know if there's anything you can criticize Joe Mazzula about. He doesn't call timeouts. Uh he's a very dry wit with the media. Um, but like, I don't know enough about the game to be like, here's what I think of Joe Missoula's process. Um, I do like that. He ripped into the, the, um, the bench players, uh, before that game against Dallas. It seems like he's been willing to, to criticize the team, which it seems like they're, uh, want, um, I do think his weird sandcastle analogy uh, was kind of silly, um, but you know, let him do him. He's he's chewing away on that bubble gum, um, but like I just, yeah, he's done a very good job. But I just don't know how to like really evaluate him as a coach at this point. Yeah, and obviously the the real evaluation comes later because um, I haven't really seen him game plan. Like I feel like coaching like. It really, at least for me, at my level of like understanding basketball, I can see coaching much more in playoffs when you have repeat uh, matchups and like you make adjustments to certain things and like that becomes so much more apparent on a night to night basis. I can't say that I'm like noticing specific like, ooh, that's the Missoula touch out there. And that's just like my own. I don't know the game as well as like 
other like probably you do or just other like basketball journalists and things like that yeah so i i think from his time so far we've gotten to know more about just the way he's going to navigate a season um and he's a lover and a truster oh i like that he he is gonna, he is going to put his faith in the players in basically every situation um like you said he do, he doesn't really call timeouts and i i think that that can be something that we probably spend way too much time talking about like how many timeouts like really fucking matter it's just fans are getting like getting a lot nervous. Of, a lot of the time, teams call timeouts, and the other team just continues to bludgeon. All that is is fans are like, "I'm upset. I'm upset. My team's doing bad. Stop it. Stop it. Stop the bad feelings, uh, please, boss man. Call a timeout." And it's got nothing to do with basketballs. It's just fans not knowing how to control their own emotions while watching the game. Yeah, and and I think he he looks at it that way where. If he calls a timeout, it may or may not even matter. But also, he avoids them in part because he wants the Celtics to develop a mental toughness and be able to handle whatever comes their way without relying on him. Here, and, Here's my question about Joe Mazzulla, and it comes back to Brad Stevens. I mean, he Joe Mazzulla is the ultimate Brad Stevens disciple. It's like building championship habits is what Brad Stevens used to talk about, about like, and what... Like you need to have championship habits, so when things go poorly, you have something to call, like kind of rely on and, and fall back on. What do you think this team's like habits are at this point in the season, at the halfway point, and, and what do you think they need to get better at? And is that something Missoula can work on? And and do you think he deserves credit for the habits that they do have? Yeah, it's it's hard to know exactly how much he deserves credit for because honestly, he he took over. Days before training camp. That's what like, I'm saying. Like he took over a team with a uh, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, who are just two of the like best basketball players in the NBA. It's like they he, they're very good. Uh, all he has to do, I'm not saying he does nothing. I'm sure he does a lot, but like at the end of the day, he is relying on an extremely talented roster of basketball players. Yeah, and it's hard to know who deserves credit for what, but he has needed to navigate a lot in his first season as a head coach. Like that whole Ime Odoka situation was was so much. And it was emotional for players. It was emotional for people in the organization. That was a really difficult situation to step into. Um, And for him, not only that, but like he's 34 years old. He's everyone else on staff, a lot of other People on the staff were hired by Ime Odoka. Some of them were probably upset that the Celtics named Joe Mazzulla instead of them the head coach. And so he has to not just lead the players who are pissed off about their head coach getting suspended for the full season, at least a full season, but also with this staff that probably in some ways resents him for getting this opportunity instead of them and also has loyalty to Ime Odoka because many of them are his close friends. So the whole situation was tricky, and I think it speaks to Joe's personality and also, of course, the the personalities of the other guys on staff on the team. 
that he was able to navigate all that and keep everyone on the same page through that is a great feat. And oh, yeah. He, like, I, I can't break down, like, the X's and O's of what he's done, but, like, in just in terms of, like, organizational management and leadership for the whole email situation not to just dismantle or derail the the team you just have to give him a lot of like credit like he has made the right decisions because once you become the head coach you are in charge of the entire coaching staff the all of the players all the training staff like that is becomes your purview and it seems like he has done a phenomenal job of um even though if it was a like a great infrastructure in place he has done nothing to hurt that infrastructure and has kept everything moving and like um very smooth sailing and you just hear the like the guys in the locker room they seem very pumped about just like where this team is and just in terms of culture of the the organization the the team that they're on like everything seems to be going smoothly and so i think joe Mazzulla deserves a ton of credit um even if he inherited a good situation for for still maintaining that through is obviously a, uh, was a difficult situation for him to step into. Yeah, and it was funny because when Damon Stoudemire went two and zero, while the acting head coach after Missoula got his eyes scratched in a pickup game, the Missoula said, "Yeah, it it's nice that our culture just kind of run runs itself," and it. <laughs> It was kind of a backhanded compliment to Stoudemire, but it was also a backhanded compliment to himself. <laughs> like, like, yeah, this this culture runs itself. It doesn't really matter who who's in charge. Um, didn't matter whether it's Emay or Joe or Damon. Like, and but I, I think there's a lot more that goes into that, and and dealing with those emotions, and especially when when Emay was looked like he was going to get the Nets coaching job. Some players were furious about that, um, and some players were didn't think that they they weren't sure whether he should have been suspended uh, is how I'll put it. Um, and especially like if the Celtics were going to suspend him for the full season, they did not want to see him coaching a rival, uh, and weren't sure like why the Celtics would grant him permission to go coach a rival if he wasn't going to coach for them. So there were a lot of emotions there, and, and Missoula has kept everybody um, focused on the same goal through all of that. So that that's really impressive, um, and I do think his leadership style is to just most of the time just kind of let guys figure it out, um, be be hands off, and be a lover and a truster. And so far, it, it's worked out well. Obviously, they're they're the best team in the league record wise they have the best net rating in the league they've done that without Robert Williams who might be their third best player for most of the season 29 the first 29 games and then I think one after that so he's missed 30 of the 41 games um and so he's done a really good job of of just dealing with all of that uh and I like I said like he wasn't prepared for it. <laughs> he he's a thirty four year old dude who was coaching at whatever D two school he was at three years ago or four years ago, um, and a week before training camp, he thought somebody else was going to be the head coach. Like that's a crazy situation when you really think about it to step into a title contender 
um, team that had just reached the finals and you find out a week before that the head coach got suspended and, and actually you're going to be the head coach. I think under the circumstances, like he deserves ex- extreme credit for the basket, the type of basketball he has them playing. And then I, I do think, and they were going to change um, with or without Ime Udoka, but the offense, uh, the level of player movement, the level of ball movement is just at another level from even when it was last season after they turned it around. There's, they don't call a lot of sets. They play a lot of random basketball. It's all about reading, reacting, and and just the style that they play um, has been pretty impressive. And the the selflessness with which they play has been pretty impressive, especially when you judge it compared to where they were literally a year ago this time when things were just a mess. And some of that goes to Ime. Some of it goes to Joe. I don't know who to credit for it, but but it's impressive. So you're trying to say coaching does matter. Yes, yes, coaching <laughs> coaching does matter. Is the kind of change in the offense um your biggest surprise for like what this Celtics team has become over the first half of this year? Like what do and it doesn't necessarily have to be a change in the whole team or be like a, a player, but what do you like what the thing looking back right now? that has been the biggest, uh, I guess, shocker or surprise to you about the first half of the Celtics season? Yeah, I, I guess the level at which they execute offensively is up there. And that, that was really important because, and, and like you said, they're not like the best offense in NBA history. Um, I don't think they're they're not going to be the best offense in the league. Like, I think the Nuggets are going to quickly – past them i think they can be uh, still have a a top five offense but i'd be shocked if they still like finish the year with the best offense in the league yeah but to me it's more about the process behind it and how how difficult are you going to be listen listen to you little little kaizen king process over results but how difficult are you going to be to guard in the playoffs and they're not as stagnant they they use jason tatum more off ball like use him as his development him as a screener too a lot his development as a screener, as a cutter, as all of that has just been uh, a huge deal for them, and I think it will matter a lot in the playoffs. And so, yeah, that that might be the biggest surprise. They haven't really surprised in any way. No, it's been like, <laughs> like a relatively just it's, like it's hard to mild, think of a surprise. mild year for them. They've just been like consistently pretty good. You want to know what my biggest surprise is uh, for the first half of the year? How fucking good Derek White is. Like, I knew he was, like, a pretty solid player, but he's just been very impressive. And maybe it's just taking me seeing him night in and night out. But some of the things he does on on defense, moving backwards, his blocks, um, but then also just his, like, his shot making, his floaters in the paint. I just didn't – I I apologize for whatever I uh, – previously thought about Derek White because clearly I did not give him enough respect but he's been damn good this season and I think a major reason why they can have been so successful not having their like two big lineup and having him in the starting lineup he's just he's a delight to watch every night and like every single night makes two to three plays that are just like wow that was super impressive (laughs) he is averaging more blocks per game than Giannis more blocks per game than Bridges, more blocks per game 
then Bam Adebayo. Wait, what? <laughs> OG Ananobi? Like, Draymond Green? More blocks per game than Draymond Green? Like, it's it's insane how many shots he's able to block. Uh, it makes no sense. He is, I believe, the... No, Shea Gilders Alexander is ahead of him. Um, they are the only two guards in the top... I'm looking at this now. In the top 47 of shot blockers. Kyrie Irving is 48th. But... Some of the blocks he makes are just out of this world. Uh, he's great at like avoiding screens and recovering to a guy to block him from behind. Sometimes he'll meet guys at the rim, and he he's not like this freaky athlete, but he has an insane ability to time things perfectly and get up just as high as he needs to to block a shot. It's it's wildly impressive. My second biggest surprise is. Uh... Grant Williams additions to his offensive bag. Uh, like, I just didn't know he could put handle uh, as well as he could and play make as well as he could. And he's just been, as we saw last night, just a, a very solid player, but like so much more than a three-point shooter. He's done a very good job with his three-point shooting, but like he clearly added to his game. And I think it's been extremely beneficial for the Celtics and it will allow them to play a little bit bigger and have that physical size and toughness and not really lose much on, on the offensive end. Cause I think as much as, like he had a great game seven against the bucks last year, but he's not exactly wasn't like a, an offensive threat uh, in the playoffs last year. And I don't still think he's like a threat. I don't think teams are worried about Grant Williams, but he just gives you that much more playmaking and makes it so your offense can be a little bit more dynamic and is less ISO heavy and I think he deserves just like credit for adding to his game things that I just I'm just like much more comfortable with Grant Williams attacking a closeout and pulling the ball on the floor uh, now than I was uh, like certainly at the end of last year. Yeah, and it hasn't resulted in like too much more usage for him. Um, he's actually taking about the same amount of twos as he did last season. He's but he's been super efficient with those twos, and I think. You see it like the the move he made against Caruso when he caught the ball in the corner um, and just used his body to to drive the closeout and then finished over. I think it was Vucevic at the rim. It might not have been. It probably could have been called a foul. But just stuff like that um, has been improved. And I, I think that stuff matters in the playoffs. He said it after the Warriors series that when they switched – and switched everything, they were kind of able to take him away. And so a a big point of emphasis for him was to be able to beat switches, whether that's in the post, off closeouts, just by using his strength, his size, his his skill down low. And he does have skill down low. Um and, and so I think the the improvements, even though they haven't like turned him into this huge scoring threat, they're the type of improvements that in a playoff series against a great defense can matter and, and be meaningful. I concur. I'm all out of surprises. I'm all out of things to say on this uh, podcast, really. Are there any other mid-season check-in things that you think are important to get out there? Uh, 
Where would the Celtics be without Al Horford? Uh, they'd be screwed at least for this half of the year. Like, I know, I know. Last podcast, you said he stunk, um, and you said he. I didn't say he stunk <laughs> at all. <laughs> that is poppycock. It's absolutely poppycock. Uh, well identified there. Uh, he's just been very, very solid. I love the fact that he's taken sixty five percent of his shots are just threes. Like he just decided I'm only a three point uh, shooter now. Still the best three point shooter on the team, right? In terms of percentages, um, like they would like. I think he's a major reason why the offense was has been so good. I just think it's it's going to be very interesting to see what happens to Al Horford when the two big lineup returns. Because is Al Horford, and I'm mostly on the offensive end of the floor, is Al Horford as effective as a four as he is as a five? Because when he is dragging the other team's center out to the three-point line or kind of pulling them towards the corner, it creates a lot more space. But when he is doing that to the other team's power forward, it's a little bit different. And so I think it's that's going to be a big adjustment for them. But he's been huge for them, especially in Robert Williams' absence. Yeah, he's just so steady. And he's played a lot of minutes for a guy his age, probably more minutes than they wanted him to play. Uh, but with Robert Williams out, it's just been necessary. So he's put a lot on his body. Uh, and I just think, like, he's still at 36, super helpful to everything they do. He allows them to play five out. He allows them to go big. Like, in a lot of ways, he's the guy – who allows them to be as flexible as they are. I guess they're all the guys that are like Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, <laughs> Marcus, <laughs> Marcus Smart, they, Derek they White. Allow, yeah. <laughs> but but without Al Horford, his ability to shoot the three or play the four, like a lot of that stuff just doesn't work. So he's just a connecting force and we hadn't mentioned him yet, so I figured he probably deserved a mention during this. And Marcus Smart. We haven't really talked about him. Oh, and we well, I mean, his, we haven't talked about Marcus Smart, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, like the three main kind of stars of this team. Um, but you're right. Yeah, we talk enough about those guys. But but Smart's maturity as a point guard, I think, has been one of the promising developments from from this first half too. Last year, obviously, he, he was very good in that role. Helped the Southerners get to the finals. But he's just taking another taking another step as far as decision making, as far as getting them into what they want, as far as noticing what a good shot is, what a great shot is, all of that. Um, so I think offensively, this has probably been the best run he's ever had. Even though, you know, it's it's not like his numbers are crazy. I would have to concur. He has the vision. He's assist hunting. He's uh, passing up open three point shots to get his teammates better three-point shots or just better shots in general. Um, I think he deserves a lot of credit. Saying all this, it's wild. Like, Jason Tatum, I don't know where it's going to shake out. He should start in the All-Star game right now. He's not going to. But both Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, I think, are going to definitely be on the All-Star team. I feel like Jalen Brown's making some noise for um, All-NBA consideration. And... It's just wild because, like, those two guys have been so consistently good. Uh, like, we're kind of like Joe Mazzullo. Like, we, we don't need to talk about them. Like, this team, we need to talk about the other guys who need to step up and keep playing well because, like, Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown have just been 
phenomenal for the first 41 games and you just kind of expect them to continue to do that uh, in the second half of the year. True. All right. I mean, if if you're speechless, it sounds like it's a a good time to end it. Um, I'm just going to end with more cockiness, Jay. What you got on your SATs? I got a 1430. Out of 2400? Out of 1600. Damn it, I was trying to flex on you, and you basically got the same score. What did you get? Uh, I took the ACTs, and I got a 34, which is like equivalent to like a 2200. Damn it, Jay. I was really wanting to sign off being like this intellectual dick, and you kind of ruined it. How did a 1490? That's that's bunk. Fourteen thirty. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm smarter than I look. Smarter than I seem. And I overachieved on standardized tests. Hey, the kid tests well. So does uh, so does professional sports fan Jam Packer. That's why you guys listen to us because our uh, ratings are through the roof. Uh, thank you guys for tuning in. We'll be back later in the week. Break down the Pelicans game and the game against the Nets, and then. The professional sports fan turns into a reporter himself. That's right. I'm going down to Charlotte, doing some gonzo journalism, sleeping on the uh, the couch of the enemy. Uh, and so we'll get a full report from my time uh, in Charlotte uh, next week. Make sure you guys tune into that. Thanks for listening to this episode of... I did, I did not know that SAT scores would be potable, but... <laughs> Anything is potable! Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.